to Supply Chain Next with your host, Richard Donaldson. Join us as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges professionals face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Supply Chain Next. And I am uh, just, just absolutely thrilled to have Catherine Wheatman here, who is tuning in from London and uh, uh, who is a globally recognized, not only podcaster, but author and speaker in the area of circularity. And so just thank you for having the time to come speak with us today and, and really looking forward to the conversation, Catherine. Yeah, thanks, Richard. And it's nice to meet you. And just to clarify, because um, people would be shocked if I was in London because <laughs> oh. it's, a lot, it's quite a long way away. So I'm on London time, but I'm up in North Yorkshire. Oh, right on. Uh, so okay. uh, okay, in, yeah. in the rural wilds, um, yeah. much further away from, from towns and cities. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're in, you're definitely up more in the Scottish territories, as it were. Uh, yeah, closer, closer to Scotland than, yeah. than yeah. London. Yeah, yeah. I got gotcha. you. I can hear a little bit maybe in the accent as well, too, kind of that northern English uh, a, a wee bit uh, in there. But uh, Catherine, just like we want to, you know, um, I mean, you've got a, such a fascinating story to tell. But want to start at the very beginning, you know, let, let's just, you know, tell the audience about who you are and kind of how you got into what you're into, because, it, you know, circularity is big right now. Sustainability is huge right now. And you are obviously been at it for a long time. How did you start? How did you come out of school? Were you even thinking in the world of environmentalism? No, not at all. I think I was um, I was interested in problem solving um, and it was at a time when uh, computers were just coming into business, so not even personal computers. I did one of the first computer studies um, qualifications at school, and we were programming on punch tape and punch card and wow. um, borrowing time at the local university because you know school didn't have a computer. So that kind of got me into thinking about logic and algorithms and how to solve problems. You know, using a uh, a logical process, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, so I was quite interested in that, but I ended up working first of all at 18 for a multinational um, women's uh, fashion manufacturer that had um, production sites all around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I started off in production control and purchasing, kind of doing admin type jobs, kept improving whatever process I was using for my job that uh, sometimes risked um, engineering myself out of a job because um, in one particular example where I was uh, logging what, what came off the production line and went into the warehouse, I redesigned the system so that instead of taking all week to do it, it took me less than a day. Wow. <laughs> so that was slightly risky, but luckily my boss was quite enlightened and just gave me lots of other things to, um, you know, get under my, get my teeth into. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I um, ended up training as an industrial engineer, work study engineer, um, and then moved from there to Tesco in Tesco's distribution centers, mm -hmm. starting off doing uh, industrial engineering work study, and then eventually moved on to the team that was designing the first, what we called composite distribution centers, so multi-temperature mm -hmm. distribution and Tesco's model was the first of its kind, I think worldwide with multi-temperature vehicles and multi-temperature warehouses. So I was designing the operational flows and, and working methods for that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then moved from there to a third party company. Um, that wasn't such a good move. Uh, and then joined Kellogg's in their distribution team mm-hmm. and ended up taking responsibility for all of Kellogg's Europe transport operations mm-hmm. um, with uh, half a dozen or so different third party hauliers to manage and contracts to negotiate and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was headhunted by a supply chain consultancy, um, went to work for them. And within a year, we'd gone from having only UK projects <laughs> to no UK projects and everything was abroad. Um, and so I kind of realized that commuting out abroad on an airplane every week wasn't really my my kind of thing. Um, and lots of my former colleagues had ended up at XL Logistics, as it was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, XL was a big big US brand. Yeah. Um, and they were all saying, you know, come and join. It's really, it's really good. Um, got lots of good things going on. So I then moved across to join Excel, which became DHL supply chain. Right. Um, so I'd kind of done lots of project management, project risk management, solutions design, and eventually ended up supporting business development and then what DHL called product development, which was really about service development. So what else could we do for our clients that really added value? Mm-hmm. So things like um, co-packing and helping helping companies design their packaging, mm-hmm. some environmental solutions, dealing with waste and packaging and helping companies recycle more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, services for airlines, all kinds of specialist things that we thought we might be able to expand into different countries and and um, gain new clients and so on. Okay. So, and I guess from a personal point of view, I was really into outdoor sports, mountain biking, all that kind of stuff. And then there were a couple of, when I look back on kind of how did I get back into, in, into sustainability, yeah. there were a couple of big life events um, that sort of uh, made me think differently. So in the late 90s, um, I got food poisoning on holiday from a contaminated bottle of water. Um, you know, contaminated because it was supposed to be a sealed bottle of water, but sure. actually it was just tap water. Right. Um, and that turned into months of illness and a food intolerance, which got me looking at what's in packets of food and, you know, and what on earth is this thing that I've never heard of? Right. Um, and realizing just how industrialized a lot of our food had become and also realizing the importance of our biome, you know, our, our gut, mm-hmm. our health and so on. Mm-hmm. So that got me into organic food and realizing how much better it was for farm workers as well as for people eating mm-hmm. food at the other end and of course for animals and biodiversity. And then in 2003, I was in a mountain bike event and I got hit by a car, um, ended up in hospital for five weeks, 10 days in intensive care. Oh my God. And whilst I was there, um, I managed to contract the killer bug <laughs> MRSA um, and uh, was on antibiotics. And of course it's antibiotic resistant, but that was the only solution that they had. So this went on for weeks. I had 28 different um, sort of wounds and pin sites around my body and the MRSA was in virtually all of them. Luckily, um, I wasn't, cause I was in isolation. I wasn't getting newspapers and stuff like that. So I couldn't see all the newspaper headlines cause it was a real big thing at the time of, you know, killer superbug 
Oh my goodness. Goes wild in UK hospitals. So luckily I had no idea just how bad it was. Um, otherwise I could have been in a, you know, in a bit of a panic. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they eventually discharged me and the district nurse visited every day to inject me with um, what she told me were a thousand pounds worth of antibiotics every day. Oh my God. And it, and it still wasn't working. Right. And so um, as I often do with these things, I decided to do my own research mm -hmm. um, and came across the fact that garlic, a component of garlic, um, which I then discovered was called nature's antiseptic that we've been using for, for years mm -hmm. to clear up infections. A com component of garlic was effective against MRSA. Okay. And so um, I managed to get hold of some, uh, convinced them not to put me in a clinical trial because that could mean I got the placebo. Right. Um, and a couple of weeks later, I was clear of MRSA. So oh, that kind of got me thinking much more deeply about, again, you know, the food system and how antibiotics are everywhere in the food system because of their use in animals, sure. um, not to combat infections. And also got me kind of questioning why people, why experts are often so resistant to new ideas or even old ideas. You know, we've, as well, much as Because like they end up being wrong. That, I mean, that, that I think you're touching on something that's so fascinating to me, especially someone who's a recognized expert now in the area of circulator, which you're going to get to. But, you know, a lot of it's just ego. It, it's just people have a hard yeah. time accepting that, especially in medicine, right? It's, it's, it's a practice yeah. for a reason. But mm. what we, we, we know far less than what we actually do know. I mean, it's sort of an old adage, but you're proving this point right here where it's like, a lot of these experts, I mean, it, that's just opinion at the time, you know, change mm. and people are very reluctant to admit that because they hate uncertainty. They hate, mm. I, that's my kind of, I mean, I don't know about it, but I mean, yeah, I'm right there with yeah. you. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Yeah. And there were, I won't go into the other stories, but there were a few other things from that accident that kind of made me question my trust in um, you know, people who were experts in one thing, but kind of wanted to stay within their own frame of reference. Right. Um, and I guess looking back on other parts of my career, that's kind of been one of the things that's probably, you know, annoyed the hell out of my colleagues and managers. Yeah. My kind of questioning, well, you know, but why? Why? Yeah. Why can't we do it this way? Or why does it have to be that way? So, so I guess that's kind of a, you know, one of those um, things that developed early on and, and um, has probably just become exacerbated over time. But yeah, those, those two kind of things got me really much more interested in what was happening. And then fast forward to 2010, um, I was starting to become really concerned about climate and I was going to supply chain sustainability events mm. and um, just wondering why everybody was talking about incremental improvements, you know, fuel efficiency, that kind of stuff. Right. And nobody seemed to be looking at the bigger picture. Right. And I kind of realized that in all my work, I was helping big brands get a bit more effective and efficient at selling yet more stuff that we probably didn't need. Mm -hmm. So in effect, I was earning my living by contributing to the problem, you know, in a, in a small way mm -hmm. and kind of going against what I uh, thought was important. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was kind of feeling, you know, guilty and conflicted about that. And I decided to, you know, research this and see if I could switch people on to realizing how big a problem it was and, and hopefully that there were some solutions out there that, you know, we could be all, all using. Mm -hmm. um, because everybody I spoke to seemed to think that sustainability and successful business were, 
polar opposites, you know, right. not, not complementary. So I went off and did more research than for my MSc, um, you know, months looking into everything, um, not just climate, but water, resources, population growth, growth of the middle classes, you know, waste and pollution, everything. And at the end of all that, I was um, just really depressed. And it seemed like the only way forward was that everybody got to have less and, right. you know, and who was going to buy into that. Right. But along the way, I'd come across new terminology, even, you know, things like 3D printing was new back then. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so industrial ecology um, and the circular economy. And when I started to research the circular economy um, with a really good book by some, um, some people I now work with from time to time, um, Ken Webster and, and Craig Johnson. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a book aimed at school children called Sense and Sustainability. And, you know, the light bulb just went on. It was a real, you know, a kind of um, epiphany moment that there was a way forward where we could have good standards of living for everybody, but without wrecking the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I kind of got really excited about that and started doing talks. My boss was very supportive, doing talks to industry groups, institutes, customer groups, and internally, um, and trying to spread the word on the circular economy and find out, you know, which companies were doing this. Mm -hmm. um, but then after a reorganization, I you know, couldn't spend time on that. My new boss um, said I could do it if I took holiday to go off and talk to customer groups and things. So I decided, you know, it's time to um, make a big decision and, and focus in on circular economy. So that's when I set up my own my own business um, and started kind of, um, you know, trying to just spread the word really and find good examples, which were thin on the ground at the time. Right. Um, and then a couple of years later, I got a phone call from a publisher, Kogan Page, to say somebody would suggested I'd be a good person to write a book about waste in the supply chain. Mm -hmm. so I kind of thought, well, I'm sure I could if I kind of, you know, sat down for long enough and thought about it, but who's, who's going to buy a book about waste in the supply chain? Right. And um, I was talking to somebody at a circular economy event uh, on the same day this email came in and she said, well, why don't you turn it around to be about the circular economy and supply chain? So I thought, oh, that, why didn't I think of that? Right. Great idea. So I kind of pitched that idea to Kogan Page um, and that was the, um, ended up being the first circular economy handbook back in 2016. Right. Which is, you know, arguably... I don't know, five, six years ahead of the curve, as it were. But I also want to, you know, because again, the world is relatively small in the area of anything when you deal with the thought leaders and thought leadership and the people guiding the conversation. And, you know, you referenced Ken and Greg, who also, and I want to highlight too, they were writing early on, right, around circularity. And I think, uh, I don't know where Craig's at, but I think Ken is now at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, or one of them is, I forget which one, leading you know, innovation, right? Yeah, they they were both at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation at the time, okay. um, and they've both moved on now. Ken is at um, Exeter University and doing consulting, and he runs something called the International Society for the Circular Economy, which is for anybody interested in it. Yep. Um, and then Craig is uh, consulting and um, living not that far from me in in Yorkshire. Oh, right on. Um, 
So, yeah. Something about Yorkshire and circular. Probably because of our fr- frugal genes, we don't like spending money on anything. So that fits quite nicely with <laughs> circularity. And uh, I, 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 absolutely. Well, let me let me do it again. I want to because there's so much to unpack. With just, I mean, you've got a fact. I mean, first of all, fascinating life experiences, right? Coupled with the work, and I think you know, interweaving those. I think the insatiable to ask why for all things is also a common thread for people like ourselves that are just, you know, they don't, they, they, they almost get highs when they hear someone say, this is how we've always done it. I'm like, oh, okay, wait, 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 that's, mm-hmm. my, that's my, that's my siren call for like, okay, how, do, what, what, what do you mean by that? Let's unpack that. Right. But you had a really robust supply chain career, right. That mm-hmm. led to circularity. I mean, 16 some odd years at DHL is not something trivial prior. I mean, you mm-hmm. almost had 20 some odd years of hardcore supply chain, right. Mm-hmm. Looking back on that now, that's almost like a superpower in your ability to articulate how circularity can affect the global supply chain, right? Mm. I'm not sure if you planned it that way, but it seems like, I mean, the progression is a very, I mean, you really like, and then fast forward today, you're like right smack dab in the middle of all things leading into the global supply chain where we've got our 108 gigatons of stuff that we yanked out of the ground as measured by the Circle Economy Group out of the Netherlands mm. there in your backyard, right? That's that infographic off the National Geographic article by Robert Kunzig in May 2020. I put that out there all the time. That's split 50-50 roughly between biomass and stuff we pull out of the ground, right? And as measured, it shows us that we're at about 8% circular, right? Mm. Why aren't we 50? Why aren't we 90? Why? I mean, how, well, you know, but, but again, there's a measurement, right? But that, that just came out a couple of years ago. So all of this is a windy way to get to, right? You know, that progression from supply chain into circularity, looking back on that now, you really laid the foundation for the work you're doing now, whether you knew it or not at the time, right? But, you know, now you've parlayed it into something that's, you know, really top of mind for everyone, because there's all this noise is starting to kind of go away and people are really starting to focus and hone in on circularity, right? So, Hmm. you know, just reflect on that for a second. Like, how did your previous work in supply chain help you to get better at articulating what needs to be told now in the world of circularity? I think it was really the mix of sectors that I came up against because, um, you know, I'd, I'd already worked in fashion, I'd worked in food retail for Tesco, then food manufacturing for Kellogg's. And then when I moved to DHL, I was then able to come into contact with all sorts of other sectors and understand how they worked, understand how, you know, automotive led the way in terms of international supply chain design, understand about the complexities of tiers of suppliers and how difficult it is to control what's happening in all those those tiers. So I think it was just helping me build up a picture of how complex things are, but also to see in some of the work that we were doing for clients, what kind of things were going wrong um, without anybody perhaps being aware or being able to do anything about it. So. Um, to, I won't name the company, but to give an example, um, buying a merchandising teams in a fashion company were incentivized on the gross margin of what they were buying, sure. but there was no follow-up to see whether that what they'd bought ever sold through. So they looked good because they'd you know bought this thing at a massive margin, but it never sold through. And so there was then an ongoing cost to keep that in inventory until it was eventually sold at a discount. So kind of realizing 
um, you know, how supposedly, uh, you know, simple metrics could drive the wrong behavior. That, that was also something that really helped me start to think not just about circularity, but about resource efficiency and the unintended consequences of things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's quite a big theme that I'm starting to unpick more of now, the unintended consequences, because even moving to circular models can have unintended consequences and can drive, can drive rebound or can appear to solve one problem, but create a different and just as, um, uh, just as problematic issue, you know, um, environmental issue in a, in a different part of the supply chain. Well, and I think you touch on it here, but part of that inherent requirement in doing that analysis to avoid those types of things is a system level view mm. of what you're trying to solve for. However, I can say those words, but it's really hard to paint the full system level view because are you high enough in elevation so that you can see the full picture and what those you know consequences are across the whole you know system itself right mm. and i think that's where things get challenging but now with the amount of data that we have available to us the internet has interconnected the world in a way that we're still not even you know we're still discovering new ways to do things but it's mm. it's providing a system level view that we've never had before when I can rattle off 108 gigatons of stuff coming out of the ground, even though if that's mm. maybe 5%, you know, uh, error rate, fine, whatever, directionally it's accurate. We've never had that data historically mm. before, or it took years to get. Now we can start to begin to see this. And therefore, when you say, hey, there's 8% circular, now you put a number in front of people and it's like, why aren't we 50%? But, but before I get to that, let me kind of touch on something here. Circular is now becoming a big deal right here in 2022, 2023. And I think it's going to be bigger and bigger and bigger. I had uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, um, sort of a younger version of you, Kyle Ritchie, who wrote Circular Economy mm -hmm. for Dummies, right? And, and he's great because he's kind of the new blood coming in, kind of our, our you know, evangelizing circularity models to everybody, um, which is fabulous. But circularity has kind of, it's always been there. It's like recycling. I mean, it's, it's, it's in a way... It, you know, recycling is not a term that I think is very sexy for people, even though that's kind of reuse and recycling is what we're talking about. Circularity is sort of a different word. So therefore, it doesn't have the same connotations or history behind it, right? That, that you know, engender oftentimes negativity around recycling mm. for some reason. But now it's becoming big. It's, it's, it's becoming the forefront. You've been thinking about this for a long time. Why is circularity, why did it take so long? For the world to get its arms wrapped around this, it seems so simple. Yeah, it does seem simple, but we've been buying into this story that success is all about getting bigger. Yes, um, and I think since since the the fifties that started to to move forward, and maybe when shareholder capitalism became more of a thing, so that mm -hmm. investors were starting to look for shorter term returns. And then of course we've had the rise of the middleman. So speculators and hedge funds and commodity buyers and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So everybody's focusing on the short term. Right. And that's led to this kind of race to the bottom, if you like, where nearly every company is trying to follow some form of um, fast fashion model. How do we make, how do we make the next version of something 
So it's so attractive and we can use all our sophisticated marketing, which is really sophisticated, mm-hmm. to persuade people that they'll feel so much better if they just have this thing or, you know, use use this service or whatever. Right. And more and more companies have, have kind of gone down that route that we have to sell more to be yeah. successful rather than focusing on profit margins. Some of that is starting to unravel a bit. And some companies, I was just looking at Apple's latest results mm-hmm. um, for a presentation I'm, I'm doing to the United Nations Circular Economy course tomorrow mm-hmm. and looking at how Apple's service profit ratio is more than double that of its exciting and innovative tech mm-hmm. and how Apple over the last five years has been trying to double that service revenue and has, and has managed that and now wants to grow it again. Mm-hmm. And the, an- the financial analysts are starting to pick up on this. And, you know, Apple no longer says how many iPhones it sold. And when you look at the tech innovations in those iPhones, you know, it's one or two things. It's not, and a lot of them are software related. So did you really need the phone? Right. Um, and Apple's set out its intention to be a circular company and is doing quite a few things towards that, but could mm-hmm. do an awful lot more. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, uh, and when I look at, when I look at companies succeeding with Circular, they're nearly all disruptive startups mm-hmm. who, you know, they're not wedded to this, we've got to get bigger to, to, to make money. It's mm-hmm. about keeping their customers really happy, mm-hmm. building partnerships with suppliers mm-hmm. um, and collaborating with suppliers, even collaborating with potential competitors to build a network that's all heading in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And those companies are making money by, you know, not spending loads on marketing. Word of mouth is spreading the word for them because customers love what they're doing. Employees love what they're doing and love working there and are going the extra mile to um, make this work. The customers want to give them feedback about, you know, what's not quite working so well so they can improve things. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of model that's much more future fit, I think, than this sell more transactional. How do we replace the churn of customers that we've just lost because, um, you know, our uh, the fact that we've pulled the plug on support for the last model or a model that was, you know, four or five years old, the fact that we've pulled the plug on support for that has just caused a furore on social media and suddenly we've lost a load more customers, you know, like happened with uh, Sonos when it decided it wasn't going to replace its speakers. And I was one of those customers that just thought, right, red pen through that, never buy a brand again, Um, (laughs) find a different solution. So I think that coupled with the issue around resource availability, and just to come back to what you said on systems thinking, Mm -hmm. We do have a lot more data and we do have more ways of visualizing long supply chains and thinking about all the the links in those supply chains and having much more of a helicopter view. Mm -hmm. But what we don't have is a picture of other sectors and other companies and their impact on the resources that we want to use. So if I, if we look at You'll have heard of critical raw materials and yeah. different different countries have their own list that's, you know, important to them. Um, so there's a US list, there's a European Union list that's updated every couple of years. Mm-hmm. And some of the materials in that are used by 
emerging technologies that are really important for the green revolution. They're also used by telecoms um, and all sorts of other industries. But all of those sectors are looking at their own materials in isolation. Right. So um, a student working at TU Delft, Technical University of Delft, was doing a study on on telecommunications and looking at four or five um, newish types of, you know, it was kind of um, 5G and um, uh, distributed storage and five five different things. And then looking at the key, key materials that they were going to use mm-hmm. um, and looking at their growth. And when you just looked at those five products, just in telecommunications between them, they were going to use more than the forecast supply of several materials. Wow. Yeah. And then you bundle in all the batteries and all the wind turbines and cars and everything else that's going to use those. And suddenly you've got a car crash coming. So clever companies, and I think Apple is one, is one of those looking at what it's doing are starting to think, okay, why do we just keep fighting for access to these virgin resources? Some of which as we're seeing now, um, might be controlled by countries we don't really want to have to partner with. Mm-hmm. And, and that's come home to, to companies and governments around the world with the invasion of Ukraine. So why do we rely on this one-way supply of resources when we could just be keeping what we've got in use for longer mm-hmm. and, and making a turn on that product every time it's rented, every time it's resold, every time it's refurbished, mm-hmm. every time it's remanufactured? Why aren't we doing that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, thinking about return on product instead of return on capital invested or return on, um, on equipment. Well, I, Why aren't I, we thinking about return on product? So I, some I, companies I, are starting to think differently. Well, and I just, you know, I was chopping at the bit there because you, you keyed on term return on product, which is almost like that's a new KPI-ish. Yeah. is really one of many that are starting to emerge in the world of circularity. And I'll go one step higher than that, which is for me, there's something as simple as, as just what I'll call the circularity ratio. Mm-hmm. And it's the ratio of virgin materials over non-virgin materials. And it should mm-hmm. be as close to one as possible, right? Like, yeah. and, and I've seen this story before because it was the same thing. I was in the data center world. And we saw something called PUE, power utilization efficiency, won't bore you, but you know, again, it's it's the ratio of power going to the data center versus power going to the actual computer chips. Mm-hmm. And you didn't want to waste a bunch of power on things that weren't doing useful work, aka non thing, you know, the mm-hmm. air conditioners, right? Yeah. So and and the PUE when it, when it first came out, you know, it was like 2.4, 2.5, whatever it does matter. But once that measurement came out, within 18 months, the average dropped to like 1.4. And I think there's something about circularity that's just we're just and and I'm imagining you're right there too. We're just at the precipice of defining kind of what the circularity goals are and how to measure it mm-hmm. so that not only we can track it globally on those 105 gigatons of things that we're pulling out of the earth every year, right? And how we're you know going from 8% circular to 50 and 60 and 70 and getting up to 100%. Um, but we don't have that defined yet, right? Mm-hmm. You talked about return on product. That's a, that's a couple clicks in. That's a couple layers to me below. I think it's absolutely right on. Yeah. It's on a higher level one yet that makes yeah easier for people to discuss this stuff. Um, I don't think it is necessarily a level below. And the, okay. the reason I say that is because, yeah. um, and I, I love what the, um, um, you know, the circularity gap 
report is doing. Yes. Um, and that and it is really important. We do need to circulate things. But what I see most big businesses focusing on is how do we circulate the 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 materials from the product? How do we right. recycle things? How do we use recycled materials? Or how do we swap from virgin materials to, you know, virgin what we call technical materials, um, you know, metals, plastics, chemicals, how do we swap from those to biological materials? Sure. But that's not the answer because that, and I think they're going down that route because it still means they can carry on with the sell more model. All they're doing is replacing virgin resources with right. recycled resources. Right. But so often when we look at what's happening with recycling, it's energy intensive, it's chemical intensive, mm -hmm. it involves lots of toxins, and it's highly inefficient. We have to get everything to the recycling plant, which might cost you know millions to set up, and then we have to get things back into the supply chain. Mm -hmm. So all it does is kind of you know it's a bit less bad, but it mm -hmm. can create all sorts of other uh, problems with pollution from recycling and so on. And if I take the example of a of a smartphone, I'm not going to have the numbers right here, but. Mm -hmm. Um, a study by Green Alliance, uh -huh. um, a UK consultancy a few years ago, looked at what happened to a, a, a smartphone. So looking at a brand new smartphone that was 600 UK pounds uh -huh. to, to buy, uh -huh. if you sold the parts in that smartphone on the open market for you know repairs and so on, then that would realise nearly a third of the value of the smartphone. Uh -huh. But to sell the raw materials in the smartphone, you know, recycling them would le would net you less than one percent of the value of the smartphone. Mm -hmm. Fast forward a couple of years, and now you've got a two year old used smartphone. Mm -hmm. You can sell that for around half the value of the original phone. Mm -hmm. The parts on the open market are worth a bit less, about one hundred and eighty eight pounds, but still close to a third. And the raw materials are worth half what they were to begin with. So I think it's less than a quarter of a percent of the value of the new phone. Right. So not only are we using a load of energy, chemicals, logistics to do the recycling, but we've lost most of the value as well. And that's why I say the return on the product. So if Apple mm -hmm. were encouraging people to, you know, properly encouraging people to send back their end of use devices, and then providing a good quality reusable product mm -hmm. afterwards, mm -hmm. they would be making the money on that. Right. At the moment, because their system isn't very good, most of the resale market is with third parties who are making money. So for me, that's the circularity gap that companies should be looking at. If somebody else can make money out of our product, then that's lost value for us. I'm talking to you through a remanufactured Dell laptop that was remanufactured by Circular Computing, yep. which this year was awarded a kite mark to signify to everybody that, that this is as good quality, if not better than a new model. So it cost me half as much. It's got about 97% of the performance of the equivalent new model. Uh -huh. Looks brand new and the environmental benefits are brilliant because you know it's just been properly refurbished, tested to within an inch of its life. Innovative things like 3D printing to replace the feet, you know, because yeah. every manufacturer's got different. So things like that. And during the pandemic, um, when laptops were hard to come by, Panasonic partnered with Circular Computing because it needed access to remanufactured laptops. Uh -huh. 
So, you know, these markets are there. Um, JCB, Caterpillar, in you know, earth moving equipment, remanufacturing is standard. Remanufacturing is standard in America. And as I understand, the warranty for a remanufactured product has to be as good as a new one. Correct. And it gives you access to a new market. But if you're not doing that and somebody else is remanufacturing your products, you're missing out on access to those customers. You're missing out on the profit. You're missing out on all the insights from how you could be designing the product in the first place to make it more suitable for refurbishment and remanufacturing so you can make more profit later on and so on. Right. Um, and you're throwing away product, the resources that come in it, you know, everything. You're just, you're just letting that go. Well, I, I, so the story you're telling here about the remanufacturing, I'm a huge, huge fan of that as well, right? Uh, and, and the return on product circularity ratio, I mean, all these metrics come up, but, but what you, what you, kind of are telling is a story that was told before in a different industry and it was the automotive industry and Mercedes popularized at a time when buying used cars was seen psychologically as something defective. Oh my God, you know, I'm going to go back to your underlying thesis, right? Is one, yes, companies are intended to sell a lot of stuff, but conversely, people have been conditioned to think that my 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 success is pinned to how much stuff I have. Not to get mm. too mundane, but yeah, you know, yeah, there, yeah. There, there we is have a condition, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. People have been trained yeah. and taught that you know I, I am mm. going to be viewed as a better person if I have more things. And by the way, those new things need to cost a lot of money for me to demonstrate my ability, whatever that is, right? And and and, and now how? I, and so you know, I go back to the Mercedes at the time. Right. And I'm sure you remember this. I mean, I remember it, but by buying a used car, people look at you funny, like, oh God, what's wrong with you? Right. And all of a sudden Mercedes shows up and says, well, here, we're going to have a pre-certified owned Mercedes that I'm not selling to my original buyers because they're not interested. I'm opening up a whole new demographic that mm -hmm. I'm selling to. I'm reusing the car. I'm double dipping on it. So my margin selling it that second time is like probably in the 60, 70, 80% mm -hmm. range not the 30% range that I originally sold it on. And by the way, I could probably sell it again, right? So, and all of a sudden, now fast forward to today, the entire psychology around owning a new car has completely changed. People look at you exactly. to buy a new car. So exactly. You're describing this in the computer world, but it's just, again, it's like, okay, I can pick out little slivers of the entire supply chain, like automobiles, and mm -hmm. see where circularity is, is almost commonplace, but we don't think of it that way. Exactly. Now we're trying to kind of make that, you know, same philosophical circular approach to everything else. Yeah. It, but it's it, it's frustratingly slow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't but, but but this is the thing, isn't it? That yeah. you know, the other automotive manufacturers probably uh, they may have been thinking about should we do that, but Mercedes right. was the first right. first to to kind of jump in, right? Um, to take the risk and make it work, and now it's normal. And and as you say. Um, you know, buying a new car these days is kind of seen as if you've, you know, you've got money to, to throw right. away. Why oh, yeah. would you bother and right. take, take the depreciation hit? Right. And for young people, even owning a car isn't seen as necessary. You know, why have the hassle of having to insure it, tax it, maintain it, find somewhere to park it? Totally. Um, and, you know, why don't you just ride share or, you know, 
get an Uber or rent a car when you need one. Sure. So thing, things are changing. And I think going back to, you know, circularity, is it new? No, no, it's not. It's it's how we used to do things in right. the 50s. Right. Uh, only in the last couple of years have I had to, to help my parents replace the fridge, the oven and the, the hob and that they put into their house in the 1970s, which weren't top end models. It was kind of just good quality, um, you know, home electronics and they've lasted for, for nearly 50, well, 50 years. Right. Um, and, but we, nowadays we only expect those kind of things to last for maybe 10 years. Right. And you're not telling me that over the last 50 years, we've forgotten how to design things. It's all part of planned obsolescence. But I think companies don't realize how annoyed their customers get when things fail before they really should. Or when things have a small problem, you know, like a a number of years ago, I could hear the bearing rattling in our washing Mm -hmm. machine. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have two dogs, so there's a lot of grit and so on goes in the washing machine. Of course. Could hear hear the bearing. I used to do my own mountain bike maintenance, so I know how to replace a bearing, and I know how much a bearing should cost. Right. So I rang up the local um, independent electrical store, and they said, "Oh, we've got a feeling that particular brand you can't just buy the bearing, but we'll look into it." And they came back and said, "Oh, yeah, you have to buy the entire drum unit, and it's two hundred and seventy quid, you oh, know, God. versus three hundred and fifty for a new washing machine." Right. So is that the manufacturer just nudging me into buying a new washing machine? But you can bet your bottom dollar that brand. <laughs> it was another one of those red pen moments of I'm not buying this one again. Yep. And how many times does that happen? And they don't get to find out because customers just get annoyed. Yep. And don't, you know, don't complain. Don't bother to write in. Just think, right, you know, that's it. I'm done. I'm done with you. My brand loyalty has gone. Well, but, but let, me, let me, again, and I, I 100% totally agree. But what I'm fascinated with is you chose, excuse me, an example of the Dell refurbished computers. Mm-hmm. And even in the world of computing, which is sort of my background to some extent before I got on supply chain, routers and switches in the Cisco world, you bought used forever, right? And mm-hmm. I built networks back in 2000 on the backs of used Cisco equipment. And that was normal because you didn't really have a lot of, I mean, the, the reason servers have historically failed is because of, ironically, spinny disks. Not, it had mm. mechanically had to do with the breakage of, a, of something that actually was in motion versus solid state stuff, right? Regardless, but, but, but my point is, selling used computers, though, has always been a bit challenging, right? Like, I think it's changing quite a bit, mm. right? People are realizing I'm actually getting as good, if not better, right? When I say refurbished. Yeah. But there's still a legacy psychological hangup with the idea of something refurbished. Again, it took 30 years for the car automotive industry to eradicate that thinking. Mm. But it just seems like people see circularity. In, it's, in their, it's in our lives. Like you said, we already have circular principles out there. Mm. Yet it just doesn't seem to as easily uh, traverse across all the disciplines like computers, like clothes, like any other products that are out there. And, and my question to you is, 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 it just a, is it just a psychological, is it just a marketing game right now that we're playing? Like, are you feeling you're spending a lot of your time instead of just educating people, just marketing what should be obvious that we should be doing this, you know, in a way like changing people's perceptions? Yeah. I think it's, it's the super tanker issue with big brands 
Okay. You know, when you look at it, the smaller companies are, are doing things, the big yeah. brands are finding it much, much harder. Yeah. And even when they're doing circular things, it's, you know, a pilot study here or it's, um, you know, a, a trial of something or it's, you know, it's, it's one or two change materials or whatever. So um, I was fascinated um, to read a new take on the Kodak story. You know, I've kind of used Kodak as an example and I've, and of a company that didn't really move with the times when digital came along, even though they employed the guy, as you probably know, who invented the first digital camera. And I kind of had this perception that Kodak, despite employing that guy, just didn't really get what digital was all about. Um, and I'd read some stuff about how politically powerful the film division was and kind of, you know, squash some of the investment. But then I read a, a new study um, that compared Fujifilm and Kodak. Mm-hmm. And it turned out Kodak, Kodak invested quite a lot in different ways to use digital and to, to, to try and kind of make digital work for Kodak. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, was, it still all revolved about around printing the photos in the end. Right. And the analyst made the point that what Kodak had failed to realize all along was that customers didn't ever really want to print their photos. What they wanted to do was share their stories. And when social media, smartphones, and ways of digitally sharing photographs came along, why on earth would you want to go and print your photos? Mm -hmm. So Kodak was kind of trying to make digital work for its existing model without properly understanding what customers wanted all along. And this is what I think is missing in a lot of companies. They're kind of trying to make, trying to do a few circular things around what they're doing now, mostly to either reduce resource risk for things that could be in short supply, um, you know, make a good marketing story. Mm-hmm. or deal with some upcoming legislation on recyclability and things like that. Mm-hmm. What they're not doing is looking at the fundamental business model. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing really good things like Philips selling lighting as a service yep. and selling not just the, the the lighting, but paying for the energy that goes with that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the old example of Rolls-Royce selling power by the hour. And the airline industry is another one that's, you know, it's not just air, it's not the just the engines. Right. Airlines lease everything. They don't buy anything. So every company supplying into that market has an incentive to design something that can be refurbished and used again. Mm -hmm. Um, Why would you design something and only get one turn out of it? Right, right. So there are business models out there, and I think it needs other big companies to think, how are we missing out on this? What sectors like automotive, like airlines, are doing things where they can get much more of a return out of the products they've made the first time mm-hmm. instead of this take, make, waste, and we've, we've lost it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, it's the super tanker thing. It's the power of the pull of the status quo, to quote, mm-hmm. quote Margaret Heffernan, that there are so many kind of naysayers saying we don't want to take this risk. Um, you know, it's, it, this is working for us. Let's carry on. And that what they're not seeing is the storm clouds on the horizon, which include resource issues, which include obviously climate and biodiversity loss that are mm-hmm. going to under, undermine our ability to do things. They're not seeing how particularly younger generations don't want to to buy from companies that don't share their values. Mm-hmm. They want 
you know, products that work for them. They don't want to be marketed to. They they want to buy from companies that they believe in and that they believe are doing the right thing. And people are shocked when they find out that resources are being exploited, forests are being torn down, burnt up. You know, people are starting to get really, really worried and want a solution that is going in the right direction, not just something that is a bit less bad or it's greenwash. Mm-hmm. So, so, and, and let me take a look, look, kind of forward a little bit. And I also want to be conscious of the time <laughs> like you, I'm, I'm sure. <clears throat> and I knew this was going to happen. An hour flies by without even blinking. And I could spend probably the entire day with you here thinking about this, but you know, given where you are today and what you're looking at, I mean, circularity is, is seems to me, and I mean, I'm a bit biased when I say this seems to be coming to the forefront finally and all conversations around environmental kind of stuff. And I'm not discounting mm-hmm. carbon and carbon accounting and everything else that goes with it. Uh, that I, 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 that's great, but it's also I find to be a little bit too complex, you know. Mm. Where circularity is just cuts to the chase. It addresses all the things you're talking about. It lines up shareholder value, profitability, environmentalism, all on the same page, right? Without really breaking a sweat. So, where do you see circularity in the conversation go forward? Right? Is it is it finally getting to that? you know, sort of forefront that it should be. I mean, how do you, cause you're at the, you're, you're, you're driving the conversation. You're one of the people driving this conversation. Are you seeing more activity or is there more pull for your insights? I mean, what, what would you, yeah. Yeah, I am seeing more activity, but I think it is around, you know, what little things can we do that are starting to go in that direction? And the bit that's missing for me with big companies is how do we change strategy? How, how do we start to create a circular vision for the long term, and then what can we do to start moving towards that? Right. Um, and so that's the big shift that I think is needed. But there is, you know, that people are starting to see the multiple advantages of going circular with customer engagement, you know, with reduced resource risk. And you mentioned um, carbon. So over half the greenhouse gases that we put into the atmosphere are for, from production and consumption. Yep. So only by shrinking that footprint and by producing less, which means having durable things that last for longer, so we're not replacing so many of them every year. Mm-hmm. It means having sharing and renting systems so that if we don't want to, don't need to own a car, we can just rent one. And that means we can sweat that product, you know, get a much better return on that product, make it more productive. Right. And therefore we need less of them in the system. So those kind of things and Companies kind of back off because they think, oh, if we're not producing as much, that's not as much profit. But, you know, we need to go back to the adage that profit's sanity and revenue's vanity. There are there are big headwinds out there that are going to make it really, really difficult for companies to stay with this, you know, sell more, make it cheaper model. That's not going to work. The companies that are going to survive are those that switch to a circular, you know, how do we really engage with customers, providing them with great products that they can repair, they can upgrade, they can give us feedback on, that can be easily shared? You know, they're intuitive to use. How do we how do we make products that work for everybody, so that we can all have a good quality of life, not just those who were you know rich? Yeah. Well. So so now in my head, you just painted a graphic, right? It's almost like people used to call these things architecture uh, kind of charts, right? Different verticals. You put the companies in there. 
But in a way, it's almost like, you know, I'm seeing this sort of left to right, you know, non-circular versus circular, different industries. And who's leading in the in various industries with circularity? And I go back to Mercedes driving the automotive industry towards circularity. Cisco, as another example in the technology world, right, under John Chambers was old school, non-circular. I'm not going to refurbish anything because it's cannibalizing my primary revenue stream. Mm. Well, he gets removed and, all, and I can't remember the guy's name offhand, right? Um, I'll think of it in a second, but the, whoever the incoming CEO was, he went 180 degrees and said, well, no, we're going to rebuy everything, refurbish it and resell it because the youth, the aftermarket for our gear is, is ridiculously high and we're missing out to your point on making mm-hmm. money on that stuff. Why don't, so they completely reversed, went to circular models. And now you're talking about Dell and circularity. So, you know, what industries are you seeing with some examples and do you kind of chart that out? Because it's, again, it feels like it's a psychological thing where we're battling against. It's mm. not the practical reality. Everything you said, circular is real. It mm. will increase profits. It will de-risk your business. It will de-risk your supply chain. I mean, it, it's, it's obvious. Everyone should be doing this, but we're, we're battling the status quo. We're battling, oh, this is how I've always done it. So how do you begin to lead with examples, not just Apple, but across different industries, point to them and go, well, here's someone who's changed the world and look at how well, Mer- look at Mercedes, you know, uh, uh, annual statements post mm. the invention of the uh, uh, pre-owned car. Mm. I'm pretty sure it's gone up exponentially as a result of that, opened up all sorts of different markets. So you can now give the corporate sort of MBA lesson as why circularity is a strategic imperative, right? And you will mm-hmm. get left in the wayside. So I'm curious as to how you kind of look at that approach. Yeah. Well, when I'm telling stories, and I'm, you know, I've got over 950 different examples in my, um, you know, I call it a database, but really it's a spreadsheet with yeah. from different sectors around the world. But the majority of those are startups and small businesses. Interesting. And they're the ones who are making a success out of this, who are proving that a circular business model is viable. Mm-hmm. And in terms of big companies, I'm seeing hopeful signs from Apple. I'm hearing hopeful things from Ikea and seeing some interesting yeah. pilots there. Yeah. Philips, obviously. Yeah. Um, not so much with, with fashion, maybe Levi's. Levi's are starting to talk about longer lasting products and yeah. you know less water and better dyes and so on. Um, but again, it's all, you know, you can kind of look at what they're doing and you know, is it experimenting and trialing and testing things out, which is great, mm-hmm. or is it kind of, you know, let's do some pilots that we can make good PR from. And it, it's kind of, um, you know, I, w- I wouldn't want to hang my hat on any of those examples, but I'm keeping an eye on them and I'm, and I'm hopeful um, that they're seeing those as ways to um, be ready to take the big leap forward. And hopefully, you know, some first movers will sp- really spur others into, into action. Yep. Um, other than that, I think it's, you know, it's going to be the disruptors scaling out and then maybe big brands thinking, okay, we need to partner with these guys or, um, you know, why aren't we doing something the same as this? You know, the Fairphone um, modular phone mm-hmm. is my 2016 example. Yep. Um, that wasn't even the first modular design for a phone. Uh, there was an open source modular design mm-hmm. um, that was that was offered out <laughs> to all the phone manufacturers. Um, Motorola said, "Oh, we we'd like to do something like that." So they took it on board. Project Ara, it was called, mm-hmm. um, and then 
uh, Google bought Motorola and eventually that project just got kind of minimized and slowed down and suddenly it wasn't really modular and it wasn't really circular and, and so on. Um, so, you know, there's a bit of, bit of squashing things going on and there's a bit of testing and, you know, let, let's just see, but it, 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 it's all, it's all out there. Yeah. Um, I can't say too much because this is going to go into the next book, but I'm looking at a number of sectors and kind of building stories of what companies could be doing yes. that are based on real examples. And, mm -hmm. you know, each of my fictional companies is just bundling up things that are already happening hmm. around the world. You know, I'm not inventing anything, but suddenly by bringing all these different examples together, you have a fully fledged at scale circular economy model with, you know, tech, fashion, whatever it is. Um, well, I, so it's all, it's all happening, but yeah. nobody, nobody's kind of going all in. I can't resist because you, you sort of tease there a little bit, but with a new book coming out, is that coming out in the next year or just as if people are paying, you know, cause I, I'm curious, like what, cause that, yeah, that to me feels like you're taking the Eli Goldratt's the goal approach to fictionalizing companies and verticals to describe why circularity is good. Mm. I wanted to to so this is a a different book, yeah. um, and um, though I will be doing an update on the circular economy handbook as well, yeah. Um, yeah. a third edition for that. But this book is aimed at helping businesses make the case for the circular economy. So going through all the different advantages, um, going through all the risks that are coming up, and making sure people are clear on those. Looking at social trends, system trends. You know how we're not really we're we're only just starting to come to terms with the fact that we live in a finite world with finite land and water right. and finite resources, right. and yet we behave as if you know there are new frontiers. And I guess if you buy into what um, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are doing, you know, they're going after the new frontiers in space, but you know, is that really a realistic way to thing to pin our hopes on? So, um, making the business case and then building these stories to help people imagine, uh, a circular world, but it's all based on real examples. You know, it's kind of imagining them all in one place, but these are all evidenced by successful businesses around the world. Right. Um, right. And kind of, you know, hopefully using that to really bring it to life for people so that they can see a way through from take, make, waste to a successful circular system that really engages customers, employees, builds partnerships with suppliers. It's on board with legislation and your shareholders think, wow, this is the future. for This is what I want out of a long-term investment. I don't want to be trying to guess who's going to slip up next. Let me go with this company that's you know, working in a way that's in harmony with the constraints that we've got. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, I mean, there's, there's, oh God, and I, I do have to be conscious of time because, because I literally could keep going for, for a long time here. And I'm going to plant one seed though, which is the role of collaboration across these different companies. I mean, that's another part of circularity that I think is not off talked about, right? Um, that collaboration is a requirement for us to really get the world to circularity. And you're going to have to let down some of your guard companies and verticals to kind of, you know, share data about the resources. Otherwise, we're just, like you said, we're going to be kind of, you know, dealing with the same problem over and over again, right? Um, this, yeah. This is a global problem. This is not an individual's problem or a country's problem or a company's problem. It is a global issue. And unless we look at the whole system, like you said, we'll, we'll forever be missing the mark. Yeah, absolutely. And 
going back to what you were saying at the beginning about systems, yeah. you know, it's thinking of the, the system. I don't like to use the word business ecosystem, but, you know, the network of your suppliers, right. your competitors, your um, business customers and so on. And understanding what everybody needs out of that yes. and being much more open with what your direction of travel is, what you see as the risks and really starting to work with those companies to think, right, how could we solve this together? If you know more about what I'm trying to do, then you can, you know, come up with innovations that I might never have thought of. Totally. And those those are the ways that, you know, companies build successful partnerships and success, successful networks mm -hmm. um, that are all heading heading in a, you know, in a direction that takes us forward, not backwards. So I think it's really important. And um, to give one example, this is, so this is a company that is doing lots of circular things, mm -hmm. um, but it's coming under under pressure for its use of recycled materials. So Patagonia, yeah, which sure. was in the news last week for yeah. um, Yvonne Chouinard, the founder and the owner, um, has given the business away to a trust. Mm -hmm. um, so it's now in service to the earth. And it's doing lots of circular things uh, particularly around reuse and refurbishment of products and helping people resell products and so on. And so they've done an awful lot of open innovation where they've maybe partnered with a supplier to work out how to perhaps use natural dyes or to use a recycled, you know, how could we recycle wool? How could we recycle polyester? Mm -hmm. And then once they've understood that, they've given away the information to their competitors, to the rest of the industry to try and accelerate the pace of change in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So those kind of things, you know, it's a shift away from the, how we normally think about IP and competitiveness. But by doing that, you suddenly enable everybody to work on this problem together to make it more effective. Other people can come up with innovations that help make that work better or reduce the cost. And mm -hmm. so everybody benefits in the end. Um, and again, that's a, you know, a different way of thinking that not everybody's comfortable with, but it seems to be a way that some companies particularly are managing to scale out and uh, improve their success. Well, to your, to your point, um, and this is, this, is, this is another part of technology, is open source software development is the model you just described. It's just mm -hmm. taking that mentality and applying it to all these different disciplines within the companies, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But, but it, it, Catherine, again, I'm looking at this. I know you're busy. It's, 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 it's well past uh, uh, pint time or tea time or biking time or whatever in your evening here. But I, I, I cannot thank you enough. This has just been fascinating. Um, where, what's coming up for you just in, in closing here? Like, it sounds like you're doing some stuff for the UN, um, you know, do, you're preparing, I mean, what are you up to during the course of this year? Are you going to be traveling around speaking more? I you know new books coming out. Like what's on the horizon for you? Yeah. I've, I've got to get my head down and get the, get the book finished. It's, um, turned out to be a lot more difficult than doing the circular economy handbook. I think because it's about building stories. It's not just a logical sequence of of facts and information and frameworks and things like that. It's much more around building the, the stories um, and understanding some of the particularly social trends were things I'd not really looked at before. Mm -hmm. And also um, unpacking how value is created for different groups of people. Um, you know, that customers now want to share, want to buy from companies that share their values. That's something new. So, you know, how, can I find evidence around that? So there's, you know, there's quite a lot of 
extra research that I hadn't perhaps imagined when I set out. So um, I think the next couple of months I'm going to have my head down and getting that, that finished and off to the publishers. Um, and then keeping going with the podcast, I'm inter- interviewing some fascinating people, so I'm really enjoying that. Um, and um, yeah, a couple of, of potentially interesting um, advising and speaking uh, engagements with with bigger companies coming up. So hopefully, um, you know, I can keep spreading the word and and uh, showing people that lots of stuff's happening. You, you know, you just need to have that radar on, and then all of a sudden you see all this circular stuff going on that. Um, was under the radar before. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and you've been a, an evangelist for it. That's why I think it's so fascinating. For circularity, before it became somewhat sexy, I think we're, circularity is just becoming sexy, but you're such a great spokesperson for this right now on a global basis, both with, with the body of work that you've had, but also your experience globally when it came to the supply chain, right? Like, I mean, the first half of your kind of career, it sounds like, really laid the foundation for a lot of your thinking today, which which is unique, um, you know, as someone in the space. So I think that's it's fabulous. So really, such a pleasure today. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And, you know, I'm sure, sure there'll be lots of follow-ups on this as well. Thanks, Richard. And thanks for some great questions and really good insights from around the industry and supply chain. Really, really enjoyable talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about this episode or topics on supply chain you'd like us to cover, you can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud while collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at requis.com.